words of Jesus on uh, a bit of a holiday weekend. You go, man, did we catch him on a bad day? Um, what, what's up with this guy? Well, it's, um, we didn't catch him on a bad day. Uh, he's not in a bad mood having left the dinner party with the Pharisees. Uh, this, is, this is intentional. This is uh, instruction and counsel from him being totally relaxed and at peace. And so would you pray with me as we uh, wrestle with this passage? Heavenly Father, we ask, Lord, that you would open our ears to hear and our eyes to see what it is uh, to be your disciple. Lord, would you transform the areas of our hearts and minds that we've, just, we've gotten confused. We've, um, we've made it into something it's not. And would you clarify that? And would you um, give us the grace to stand up and to follow you? In Christ's name, amen. So you guys have, have heard uh, the phrase, uh, the, the kind of idea of reading the fine print. You know what it means to, to read the fine print? You know, to pay attention to not just the headline, not just the gimmick that might be on the coupon or uh, on the headline, but to actually pay attention to what, what's in the fine print. So a couple of examples. Uh, this one's kind of fun. Chipotle had fun with it. You guys know Chipotle? Uh, the, the, the taco burrito place, right? Uh, they got a little coupon. Uh, you get free chips and guac. Now, that's, that's in pretty large print. Um, in a little bit smaller print, you do have to buy a burrito or a bowl, okay, so they're making it clear, but you get free chips and guac if you buy a burrito. And then in really fine print, they just had fun with it because we're a culture that's so tired of being sold to and having to read the fine print. So in fine print, you can't probably read this from where you are. I'll read it to you. It says, um, oh, well, this offer is valid and only at participating locations, which in this case, it means all locations. It's not to be combined with other offers or somehow cleverly duplicated. Limit one per customer. Please present this to the cashier, but don't be surprised if they keep it. The cash value is one one hundredth of one cent, which is practically nothing. This is the fine print. Why are you still reading this? Really, go and eat a burrito. <laughs> it is, they kind of snuck in a little, little comical joke about the fine print, but you got to read the fine print. Uh, this one, July 4th. Did you see this one around town? Fireworks, free sparklers. You see the headline? Free sparklers. No gimmicks, it promises. And if you're close enough to read the fine print, it says a $10 minimum purchase is required. You got to read the fine print. Uh, my son, Tucker, part of his sense of humor is he gets a kick out of the pharmaceutical advertisements on television. Um, it's like become a thing. Like if one comes up, he stands up. He's like, okay, dad, let's listen to what they're promising. You know, they promise rainbows and unicorns. And if you'll take this drug, whatever it may be, you will have beautiful teeth and lovely people around you at lovely meals all the time. And then in the voice of like the micro machine guy from the 1990s in like 400 words spoken per minute, it says something along the lines of, this drug has been known to cause severe bleeding, nausea, blindness, or even death in some cases. So talk to your doctor to see if it's right for you. And take the drug because it will make your life so amazing. you got to listen to the fine print. We've become accustomed to this in our culture. Everyone and everybody seems to be selling something. And we're so used to there being a gimmick or a trick that we've, we're, we're a pretty uh, skeptical uh, a group. We're in the age of skepticism. Well, here's the deal. The beauty of Jesus is... There's no gimmicks. There's no tricks. The beauty of Jesus is that he, contrary to the way that oftentimes the institutional church sets things up, he's not interested in gathering a large crowd just for the sake of having a large crowd. 
He's not interested in sort of the false momentum of the masses that make it appear that he's really the guy. He's interested in calling disciples. And he says right up, right up front, this is what it means to follow me. No gimmicks, no tricks, no fine print. Um, There's not like a, a thing where like once you get in, once you say yes, then you find out, oh, by the way this is gonna cost your very life. I don't know if anybody told you that, but there's no gimmicks, there's no tricks. There's also not um, membership classes. You know, if you join some sort of fitness club, it's like you can be a platinum member, and if you're a platinum member, you're allowed to use the towels, but if you're just a gold member, you gotta use somebody's dirty underwear. So I don't know, whatever the classes are, membership. It's not that way with Jesus, because everyone who wants to follow him he says to them, has to reconcile what it cost to follow him. And so he, he, he catch the scene. He leaves this dinner that Father David preached on. He leaves the dinner and he walks out of the house with the Pharisees. He's just told this, this crowd at dinner that, you know, the first will be last, the last will be first. And he comes out and there's all these people that are ready to follow him and just sort of catch the scene. Jesus starts moving. He starts walking. He was on the move. He was, all, he was headed to Jerusalem. And, and it says, you have it in the, the gospel reading that you heard in Luke 14, great multitudes, lots and lots of people are like, okay, let's go. Let's follow him. And he turns and he pivots to the crowd. You, see, you get the scene. Like all of you think you want to follow me. I've got some things that I want to say to you. And he turns and he says to the crowd and he draws this line in the sand And what you just heard read and proclaimed uh, would certainly qualify as one of, if not the most hardest sayings of Jesus. It's not only hard because it's it's like, wow, how do we follow that? But it's also hard because it it can be a little tricky to understand at first. What What is he getting at? He says three things about what it means to follow him, and and they're shocking to us. And I think one of the reasons they're shocking to us is we've been sold a gimmicky version of Christianity. It it could have been a a church. It could have been uh, a whole tradition within the church. Somehow, we in our culture have often bought this this gimmicky version that, that sort of says that Jesus is like a bonus check to your already full life. That Jesus is, is like a, he's like a side hustle, but he's not like the main thing you really depend upon. You know, if you're like really in desperate need of something, like he'll help you out. But like, we've been sold this idea that you can follow Jesus as if there's like classes, like the elite Navy SEALs, well, they have to give up everything. But like the rest of us, we, we get in sort of at a lower price. No, three sayings. He says to the multitudes, he's not just talking to the disciples. He says to anyone and everyone that would like to follow him, that would want to be a follower of Jesus, he turns and he says three things, three things. Here's the first one. If anyone comes to me and does not hate mother and father, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Hmm. One of the things about the hard sayings of Jesus is, You've got to sit with it. You've got to to meditate on it and and say, Lord, what are you saying to us here? Because this is shocking. It doesn't fit. Some of you might be thinking, well, I don't have a problem with this because 
I already hate my mom and dad. Um, so I'm good there. You know, check. I can check that one off the list. That's not the kind of hate that he's talking about. It's not that you have some sort of antagonistic, spiteful relationship with these family members. Therefore, that's what he's after. That's not, that's not the kind of hate he's after. That's not what he's talking about. We also have to remind ourselves that, that we're not catching Jesus on a bad day, like I said at the beginning. He's not like having a tough moment. Like he's just really miffed at the Pharisee dinner that he just came out of. And he's like, I've just, you know what? Today's not the day. He turns to the crowds and he just lets them. We've not caught him in a bad moment. He's not like extra stressed out here. And so he sort of ups the, no, this is calm and collected, resolute, steadfast. This is the meek Jesus turning to the crowds and saying, you've misunderstood what it looks like to follow me. Let me clarify something. This is the same Jesus. We hold this passage that he's teaching us here on, we hold it together with the Jesus that tells us to love our enemies, that's known as the Prince of Peace, that says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, by how, by the way that you love one another. This is the same Jesus, this is the same teaching it's the same one that commands us all throughout Scripture to love our spouses, to love our children, to love our parents. What could he possibly mean by this ultimatum? Well, just contextually for a moment, let's remind ourselves, who is Jesus speaking to? What was their culture like? It's quite different than our culture in, in one sense. This was a culture that everything depended upon your connectedness to your extended family, your tribe. Unlike us, they weren't individualistic, and, and we primarily kind of worship the nuclear family. This was a total, total opposite. And Jesus touches on every possible familial connection over the whole age and span of one's life, and he challenges the way in which this culture had become to depend upon that connection for their sense of security, their sense of belonging, their sense of identity, their sense of wealth, um, only because of my minimal exposure to life in West Africa do I have a little bit of an example of when someone becomes a follower of Jesus Christ in a tribalistic society that renounces Jesus, they decide to follow him. They are choosing to walk away from their entire sense of wealth and belonging and security. This was a culture that everything depended upon your connection to your family. And so Jesus says, all of you that want to follow me, you, you think that, that it's just like an add-on to your already full life. I want to tell you that unless you forsake your tribal tendencies, you cannot be my disciple. Jesus is really clear. There's no fine print. And part of what he's getting at, one writer, Jeff Robinson, in reflecting on this, says that there are going to be rivals that are warring for the supremacy over the throne of our hearts. There are going to be rivals that are competing for the supremacy of God's rule over our hearts. And what Jesus is showing us is that only he alone should be ruling and reigning over our hearts. He's not saying that we're to have a malicious attitude towards our loved ones. In fact, isn't it interesting that he chooses a beautiful thing? He chooses a beautiful thing. There's nothing more beautiful than a rightly ordered relationship with a spouse or with a child or with a brother and sister. It's one of the most beautiful things to see in this world. 
uh, to see relationships that are rightly ordered and rightly placed, he chooses this beautiful thing. And he says that unless you're willing to forsake even what can be a good gift for me, then you can't follow me. Now, I think Matthew 10 verse 37 is one other passage that's worth comparing it. I don't think I put it up on the screen, but let me read it for you. Jesus says in that place, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Matthew 10, 37, whoever loves mother or father more than me is not worthy of me. He goes on to say, whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Could there be a more relevant thing to say to the flowerplex, to North Texas, Western individualistic, worship the nuclear family culture than have your loves gotten so out of order that if we really looked at your checkbook and your calendar and, and, and the context of what you're doing day in and day out, you would see that you've allowed a gift, a good gift, to take the place that only God is supposed to have in your life. He chooses an idol of their culture. What is an idol? Well, it's often a good and beautiful thing that we turn into an object of worship. What about you and me? What's rivaling his exclusive claim over the throne of your heart? What is that for you? If you want to follow Jesus, if you want it to be his disciple, then the rival has to be overshadowed, overwhelmed by your love and affection for King Jesus. For them, it was their, their extended family, their sense of connectedness to mother, father, brother, sister. Um, I, I think that you're on to something if you're beginning to see that it's actually the good and beautiful things of this life that are getting in the way of you following Jesus with total abandonment. When I first picked up a copy of uh, St. Augustine, fourth century writer, nobody had ever written a book like this before. No, nobody had ever written a biography up until Augustine writes the confession, the confessions of his life. And it's a pretty long book. You gotta kind of hang with it. And there's a few translations that aren't worth reading. So if you want to read one, I'd love to, to recommend a, a good translation so you can actually follow what he's saying. But, but what you get at over and over and over again is Augustine is helping us understand that what it means to be a disciple is to be one whose loves are rightly ordered. And what keeps amazing Augustine time and time again is he's like allowing the good gifts that God gives to his children to become God things. He, he's, he's beginning to over-desire. Did you know that's the heart of idolatry? Where I begin to over-desire a certain future for my children. I begin to over-desire physical intimacy with another human being. I begin to over-desire some substance. Some, this is the problem with the human heart is that our loves get out of order. Instead of the chief desire of me loving God with all that I am, my desires get all out of order. And so he helps us to see that what happens here in this verse 26 is that a disciple is one whose loves are rightly ordered. Are your loves rightly ordered? It's amazing to me um, that we, we, out of the overflow of our hearts, we speak, we narrate reality, we talk about. What do you talk about in your free time? Like when you've just got free time. Uh, I talked for 20 minutes this morning about barbecue. I love good barbecue. 
I actually love making it more than eating it, I've come to know. It's like I love the craft. I love, um, I love my family. I, I, I worry and fret over my children's future. But are these loves, these small affections, are they, are they rightly ordered? Is, is the chief love of my life when I wake up every morning that, Jesus, you've, you've won my heart and I want to love you and I want to follow you. And would you rightly order every other relationship and every other priority under the umbrella of my love for you, my, my life given over to you? One commentator put it this way. This is so good that you don't love anything too much. You love Jesus too little in comparison. This first requirement of hating other relationships in comparison to our love and affection for him, it, it goes together with this second requirement. So here's what he says in the second one. He says, you cannot be my disciple unless you carry your own cross. He says this in verse 27. Whoever doesn't carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Okay, there's this little word. I've put it in here, telos. It's, a, it's not a word we use a lot. Um, this, this, this idea of telos, I wanted to use this instead of talking about maybe priority, because like with priorities, you kind of got a list of those priorities, and there might be a first and a tenth, but with telos, what you're getting at, telos means the, the end, the goal, the aim of your life is to follow Jesus. So, so is the telos of your life, is the chief aim, the end, the goal to follow him? to carry your cross. Um, I've heard of people talk about, you know, some sort of suffering in their life that they have. And they'll apply it to this verse. Like, you know, I've got low back issues that I've got to live with. Well, everybody's got to carry their own cross. Well, look, there are non-Christians that don't know anything about King Jesus' rule that have low back issues. So having low back issues is not the same thing as carrying one's cross. You, you see what I'm saying? So just having some level of suffering in your life doesn't mean you understand what it means to carry your cross. What does it mean to carry one's own cross in the way that Jesus is talking about it here? It's not just any human suffering, but it's connecting the priorities of your life to his. Your cross and his cross are connected. What did he do? He suffered for the sake of others and for the glory of God. We can only interpret our cross by his cross. Last week, Father David had us read a section of uh, Philippians 2. Um, it really gets at the idea of what it looks like to carry one's cross, that we, we begin to live in the pattern of Jesus, who, although he was equal with God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He endured the cross. He sought to set others free that were in bondage. What what actions, activities in your everyday life is God calling you to pursue such that you would be denying yourself for the sake of others and for the glory of God? A disciple, somebody who doesn't just know that Jesus is my Savior, but Jesus becomes my Lord. That's, that's the shift to learning to carry a cross is that, that I've got to, I've, I'm following King Jesus. And where, where is he going? Well, he made his way to Jerusalem. And his way of using power was actually to give it up so that others could be free. He used his influence, his office to set other people free, to help those that were weak and were marginalized. He, 
So, so is that the pattern? Is that the telos of my life? Um, I, I've joked about this kid. There was this kid in Texas that was around 17. He was a pretty disturbed kiddo, got into a lot of trouble. He was just had kind of a, a rebellious way of relating. And um, I know I've told this joke years ago because I know I've got one Marine in the room that liked it. But his name was Vinny. And Vinny decided to join the Marines. This kid was rebellious through and through. And we all asked him, Vinny, why are you joining the Marines? And no joke, his answer was, I got tired of my mom telling me what to do. <laughs> Did you know that's a really bad reason to join the Marines? Because what you've just enlisted in is a whole community that's going to tell you what to do 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the next however many years of your life. If you want to follow Jesus and you think this is primarily about you sort of getting what you want, a bonus check to an already full life, you've got a, you've got a mistaken understanding of what it means to be his disciple. Jesus is not a handmaid for our suburban households. He's not calling consumers, he's calling disciples that know how to pick up their cross and to follow him. So what is he asking you to do? I think we sometimes think about the cross in our lives as like some one big epic, like 14,000 foot mountain that we're gonna summit. And when we've done it, we'll finish and be like, I did it, I carried my cross and I'm done. And it is a daily slow death. To carry one's cross is to realize that the ordinary events that are in your life right now are where he's asking you to respond in obedience. Like what's right in front of you. Because of our, gospel, our epistle reading from Philemon, it's worth saying it might look like reconciliation. It, isn't it amazing that Paul models for us he says, I'm an old man, I'm a prisoner of Christ. Have you ever seen somebody, we don't, we don't do cross executions anymore. Uh, we were more instantaneous than that. But, but back in the day, if somebody was carrying their cross, you, never, you knew that they, were, they had been sentenced to death. They were like basically under arrest. So, so they couldn't say as they're carrying their cross, man, this isn't working for me. I gotta find another gig. This just isn't really working out for me. I, I, I don't like this. I'm going to do something else with my life. That's not what it's like. The, the telos of one's life becomes, Jesus, I'm tethered to you and you're Lord. So you command my every action, my attitude. Where are you inviting me to respond in obedience today? Today. He reorders our love he reorders our loves. He, he gives us a whole new purpose where now, like, it doesn't really matter what I'm doing with my day-to-day -day life so long as I'm handing it over to him and saying, Jesus, I want it to all be about you. Just in case we weren't clear in verse 33, he sums it up this way. I love the message paraphrase of this in chapter 14, verse 33. Look at what it says up on the screen. Simply put, if you're not willing to take what is dearest to you, whether plans or peoples, and kiss it goodbye, you cannot be my disciple. So what, is it, what does it cost to follow him, to be his? Everything. He, he gets everything. 
Most in our culture would say something like, Jesus was a great teacher. But have we listened to what he taught? With Jesus, there's no fine print. There's no gimmicks. There's no surprises. With Jesus, there's not membership options. If you don't love him more than everything, if you don't carry your cross, if you don't let go of everyone and everything, you cannot be his disciple. Uh, Now, as I close um, this hard saying of Jesus that we're listening to, he moves into two illustrations. He begins talking about building something, and he begins talking about war. And it seems as if he's saying to us, you better count the cost. You better be sure that you've got the budget to build the building before you, know, you get to the middle of the project and you run out of funds. And so you need to count the cost because you're trying to build something and you need to think about going to war and that you have enough men and soldiers. It seems like it's all about us counting the cost. And what has he just told us that it costs to follow him, by the way? Everything. We don't hold anything back. So I've already, I've already Jesus, it's all yours. And there's certainly one or two things in your life that you're holding on way too tightly to. It may be something very dear and precious to you. And you will never discover the joy of being his son or daughter if you don't let go of that and entrust it to his care. And in the middle of that, let me say that Jesus is the builder and Jesus is the king warrior. He's just said a few months prior to Peter, uh, on this rock, I will what? I will build my church. And then he says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He's a builder and he's a warrior. And in the very next chapter, chapter Luke 15, we won't do it because next week we're going to begin a really wonderful, uh, well-paced study of the Lord's Prayer together. So this is our last Sunday in this journey up to Luke 15. But what does he do in Luke 15? He begins to show us that he's the one that goes out and to seek and to save that which was lost. He goes and he finds the lost coin. He finds the lost son. That Jesus is the one seeking and saving and building and warring so that he can set us free. So that we could live a life that's no longer for ourselves but for his glory. And so let me just ask as we come to this time of conclusion, we come to the table to receive, what is your next step of obedience in following him? Your next step. Not 10 steps later. We often do this. As a way of kind of getting the focus off of my next step, I go, well, like next year, what what should I? No, no, like today. Obedience to King Jesus is right now. It's in the present. Would you surrender whatever it is that you hold most precious, either plans or people, into his care? If you can't do that, you can't be his disciple. Let's pray. And so, Lord, with um, our elder brother, Augustine, we say, give what you command, because we can't do this in our own strength. Lord, would you give what you command, and then would you command whatever you will? Lord, we surrender our plans. We surrender the people who are dearest to us to your care. Lord, by your grace, cause us to stand and to walk as disciples of you here in this context, in Denton County and North Texas, within our own families and communities, may we be a community of disciples here at Church of the Resurrection. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.